Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me uh, to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 28 uh, together this morning. Mark 1, 21 to 28. As you turn there, I want to give you a brief review of where we've been so far. You'll remember that Mark's main objective in this gospel is to set Jesus of Nazareth before us in such a way that we will all see him and believe. Believe specifically that he is the promised Old Testament Messiah King. He was the king who was to come, the king from the line of David. But Mark also wants us to see that Jesus is is the suffering servant of Isaiah who would die a substitutionary death on behalf of his people. And then ultimately, Mark wants us this morning to see that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of all. And that he has absolute authority and he demands your loyalty and obedience from him this morning. So why don't we pray before we jump into this text. Father, would you help us? We know what your agenda is in the Gospel of Mark, and we know, in one sense, the tendency of our own heart to kick against your ways. So, Father, would you accomplish your good purposes in us this morning through this text? Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I I mentioned to you that this is Mark's goal, right? He wants to set Christ before us, but Mark has a peculiar way of accomplishing this goal for us, he doesn't go deep into all the teaching content of Jesus. He doesn't unpack all the intricacies of Jesus' gospel kingdom message. He does some of that, but primarily Mark's objective, the way that he accomplishes his objective, rather, is by setting Jesus before you, by, by bringing us, as it were, into each scene, and we get to see Jesus at work. And that is Mark's way of, of showing us that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was no ordinary man. And his, his primary way is to focus on the work of Jesus. And these works, the works of Christ, really begin in verse 2 of Mark 1. Mark 1, verse 2, here we see that John the Baptist was the promised forerunner of the Messiah. All right, Mark quotes, remember, you've got to go back several months, it's been a little while, but Mark quotes from Isaiah 43, which says that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner. That the forerunner, the messenger of the Messiah, would be a herald. As the ancient kings would enter a town, a herald would go in front and prepare the way for the entrance of the king. John the Baptist is that man who paves the way for the entrance of Jesus, the king. Now, shockingly, Mark quotes from Isaiah 43, which says that the king who would come was actually Yahweh the Lord God Himself. So right out of the gate, we have a reference to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah King who is also God incarnated. It's 
powerful. So this statement about Jesus' divinity comes immediately. And then shockingly, right after that, Jesus goes on to be baptized and identifies himself with sinners. You know, talk about jolting and jerking the will. <laughs> right? All of our expectations are, are being altered here. Here is the Messiah, and then now he's identified with sinners. And you remember John the Baptist says, I, I, I can't do this. I know who you are. I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, it's fitting for me. Right? This is necessary. This is required. I must identify with these sinners. Sinners like you, sinners like me. And I must endure this baptism. Remember that baptism in Mark? This is all pointing to the baptism of the cross. Right? This is the cross of Christ. So Jesus is willing in Mark 1 to take the baptism. It points ahead to his willing, sacrificial death for sinners like you and me. Fulfilling, really, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And further on in chapter 1, we saw that the Father himself was not ashamed of his Son, who took such a humble posture. The Father doesn't turn away from him. No, the Father looks at him in his baptism and says, what? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Son is the delight of the Father. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Father's ultimate delight. And so, he goes on in obedience, and the Holy Spirit descends on him, empowers him to obey, empowers him to do the work, rather, that God had given him, the Father had given him. And that obedience and the Spirit's empowerment drives Jesus into the wilderness, uh, to be tempted directly by the devil himself. And we saw that that was a sort of foreshadowing of all that we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, There is a war between two kingdoms playing out in Mark's Gospel. And the, the temptation itself was the foreshadowing of what was coming. Right? Jesus, unlike Adam, he obeyed in the face of Satan's temptation. And so demonstrated that he was the faithful one. The faithful, unique, obedient Son of God. And then finally, we get to verse 14. And this is where Jesus' ministry officially begins. And it begins with the proclamation of the kingdom. Right? He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was Jesus' proclamation. This was the, the ministry of Jesus. And then we saw he announced the kingdom's coming and its presence and the king's presence on earth. And then last week, we saw in a shocking turn that the king selects a very specific type of person to make up his kingdom and to do his kingdom work. And those are not uh, the noblest, the highest, the most prestigious on earth. No, it's the ordinary, run-of-the-mill people like you and me. That's the men and women and boys and girls that our Lord chooses to do the work of kingdom building. And we follow him in simple obedience. And as we do that, he transforms us into what we aren't. Right? Well, now we come to our text this morning. Verse 21 to 28. Here, 
what we're going to see is simply the confirmation of all that Mark has been saying about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. That is what we're going to see. Namely, that Jesus is, in fact, the authoritative Messiah of God. And we're going to see his authority put on display in three specific ways. First, we're going to see it displayed through his distinct teaching. Second, we'll see it through his holy presence. And then third, we'll see it displayed through his powerful command. And let me say this morning, if you do not see the authority and the power of Jesus, you will never follow him. Why should you listen to what I'm about to say from this text? Well, because your obedience, your life, in one sense, hinges on you seeing the king clearly. If he is, in fact, the Lord of all, then he is worthy of your life. And he is worthy to be followed. And you have one of two options, friend. You can either bow to him now and submit and live a blessed life following him wherever he leads. Sometimes that's through the valley of the shadow of death. But I heard this morning an elder's prayer that the Lord is the one who created the valley of the shadow of death. Pastor Dan prayed that this morning. It was striking. Sorry, Dan, I didn't mean to call you out. Um, But the Lord is the one who created that, right? We follow him wherever he leads, right? If you choose now to submit to his lordship and submit to his authority, you get a wonderful life full of difficulties but full of blessing, right? Or you can try to have heaven now and then submit to his authority in the end and spend an eternity underneath the wrath that he bore on himself on the cross. Right, you, can, you can take that option or you can submit to him now. And my prayer is that you uh, will see him for who he is this morning and, and will joyfully follow him wherever he leads. So would you stand with me? the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. They went into Capernaum. These are the disciples he's just called. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. And not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. You may be seated. My prayer 
this morning is that you will see Jesus in this text in such a way that you will marvel at his majesty, that you will see his messianic authority, and that you will be compelled to follow him wherever he should lead. So the first thing we see in our text is the messianic authority of Jesus on display through his distinct teaching. Through his distinct teaching. In the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus teaching all the time. Fifteen times he's said to have taught the word, and twelve times he's referred to as a teacher. And really, apart from his priestly work and sacrificial death on the cross, the teaching ministry of Jesus was his most important ministry on earth. In fact, if you look at Mark 1, verse 37 and 38, we see Jesus makes a comment about his teaching ministry that's insightful. He had been casting out demons. In verse 37, the disciples come in to come to him and say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Right? And then verse 38, Jesus responds and says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. So that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. It's important to see for us, right out of the gate, that the works of Jesus, his miracles, his exorcisms, the supernatural activities of Christ, these works were all in service to one thing, namely the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. All of these miracles, all of these wonders that he did, they all served to authenticate his message as a preacher and as a teacher, and also to verify and confirm his identity as the Messiah. From the very beginning, people were confused about that. And they're still confused about that today. Uh, but from the very beginning, people were distracted by these miraculous, wonderful things that our Lord did. Right? It is attracting, and you get sucked into it. And it's easy to get so caught up with these supernatural things that the Lord did. But we need to remember that they are in service to something more important, which is the identity and doctrine of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus immediately sets the record straight. He tells his disciples, fresh, freshly following him, that I came not to go cast out demons and not to heal the sick and not to do all these supernatural, wonderful things. I'm going to do them. But I came as a preacher. I came as a teacher of the word of God. I have a message and everything else is subordinated to that. Now, in the text before us, we see that the priority of Jesus' teaching manifests itself immediately after he has called these four new disciples. Right? He goes into Capernaum, and he goes into, uh, on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue, verse, uh, where, where am I, verse 21, and he begins to teach. Right? He goes in and he begins to teach. This was the priority of his ministry, the teaching of the word of God. Now let's look at a couple of details here so that we can appreciate the gravity of what is about to happen, right? Jesus takes these four fresh disciples, goes into the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a bustling city, big city, northwest uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was the place, the home of Simon, Andrew, James, and John, 
He calls them, and then he sort of goes into their uh, hometown. And after Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, which Mark doesn't tell us anything about. Remember, Mark is all fast-paced. Let me set Jesus before you. Uh, He jumps over all sorts of things. Um, But after Jesus was sort of ran out of Nazareth, he goes and he makes Capernaum his primary base of operations. And this is where he would leave. He would would leave from Capernaum to go preach, teach um, on these, essentially, these itinerant preaching tours. And he would always come back to Capernaum. And in Capernaum, Jesus did an immense amount of ministry, much we don't hear about. Remember, John tells us in John 21, if all that the Lord did were to be written down, the sky itself, the world itself, couldn't contain the scroll. So the ministry that Jesus did uh, was far more abundant than what we have in Scripture. Now, we have in Scripture what we need for life. But Jesus did an immense amount of ministry, and we know that because in Matthew 11, Jesus condemns Capernaum for their rejection of him. Right, he says this, he said, if, if the miracles that had happened in Sodom would have happened here, Sodom would have repented. But you have not. And so he says that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for Capernaum. Right, lots of ministry, lots of stiff, hard-hearted, false religion and unbelief. So that is where we are in Capernaum. And here Jesus is about to make Capernaum his headquarters, and immediately he goes into the synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath day. All right, it's a building. Uh, Everyone's in the room together. What would typically happen in the synagogue? Remember, this is not the temple. The temple uh, during the, the Solomon's temple in the Babylonian exile had been destroyed. Right, now here were the Jewish people, no temple. Their life revolved around the temple. Now they're in Babylonian captivity. What are they going to do? How are they going to worship? Well, they come up with this, these synagogues. And so we, it seems like they begin here. So everywhere there were Jewish people, at least 10 Jewish men, over 13, they would form a synagogue. And so throughout the entire Mediterranean world, you had anywhere you had a Jewish community, you had a synagogue. And here in Capernaum, there was a synagogue. And what would happen is... There would be a scripture reading, followed by an exposition or an explanation of that text, followed by prayers and singing, and it would close with a benediction. Those were the fundamental elements of synagogue worship. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Scripture, exposition, prayer, singing, benediction. Uh, This is what they would do. Typically, the leader of the synagogue, who was more like an administrator rather than a a preacher, teacher, uh, he would select from the crowd uh, someone who was qualified, a male who was qualified uh, to do the exposition and do the reading. And so he would would let him know, you're the guy, he would come up, they would have a place to stand to read the scripture. He would read the scripture, and then there was a chair that he would sit on, Moses' seat. He would sit on the chair, and then he would do his instructing. So on this occasion, Jesus, there's, there's probably some buzz about this man, Jesus. We, all, we know that they were talking about John the Baptist. And now John the Baptist starts telling people this is the Messiah. Um, and we know quickly, if you look at verse 28, that news could spread very rapidly in this time. No Twitter, no internet, no phone. But there was enough talk 
that they could spread the news, all right? So likely there was a buzz around Jesus' ministry, and he comes into the synagogue, and the leader asks him if he wants to give the exposition, the sermon. And so Jesus, he doesn't. Now Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus preaches or teaches. It's interesting. Remember, Mark is not concerned with those kind of details. He just wants you to see Jesus. Watch what he does, right? So Mark doesn't give us the details. He just says that Jesus began to teach, or really he was teaching in the synagogue. This is what he's doing. Now we do have some clues from chapter 1, verse 15, that he was probably preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This was his message. But we don't know. At any rate, here we are, and Jesus reads his text and then begins to give his exposition. And verse 22 says that the people, when they heard this man talk, they were astonished or amazed at his teaching. The ESV says astonished. The word means to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. Literally has the idea of being struck out of your senses. All right? We would say something like their minds were blown at his teaching. They were struck senseless. They were stupefied by the way in which this man taught. They had never heard anyone teach this way. They had never heard a rabbi read scripture and speak with such power, precision, direction, and absolute authority. And the text hints at the fact that they were used to hearing the scribes teach. Right? The scribes were the experts in the law. You know that. They, they were experts. But the scribes taught from a derived or a second-hand authority. To prove their arguments, they would cite the traditions of men, and they would focus on the minutiae of the law, things that seemed utterly irrelevant for the most part. And they exalted those things as the most important Jesus rebukes them for this, actually, in Mark 7. Uh, He says the problem with the scribes, these teachers that would teach in the synagogue, was that they mistakenly, or they mistook, rather, the doctrines of men for the doctrine of God. That's Mark 7, 7. He said they neglected the commandments of God to uphold the traditions of men. That's not a new problem. Traditionalism is not a new problem. It goes way, way back. And Jesus in verse 8 of chapter 7, you know, he, he says, you, you guys think that you're experts. Now, you're the experts in the law. And everyone would defer to them as the experts. Actually, when they would walk down the way, people would step out of the way. Right? These were the prestigious, uh, educated, and these were the guys who had the PhDs. Right? Everyone looked to them. And Jesus says to them in Mark 7, 8, you are experts. Experts are You're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Right? That's the kind of teacher that these people had. They were teachers who prioritized tradition over the word of God, and they taught with a second-hand authority. Jesus comes on the scene, and it's radically different. (laughs) It is not this way. And we, we really get the best glimpse of this from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You go to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the way that Jesus taught with absolute authority. And I just want to give you a couple of points here. Listen to how Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. 
He says to this crowd, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And on and on he goes. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And to be clear, Jesus is not reinterpreting the Old Testament. No, he's actually confronting the false interpretations that had been stacked up over Scripture and had hidden the word of God from the people of God. The layers of tradition, esoteric, rabbinic teaching, things that no one understood what they were saying. This is the sort of thing that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount just cuts right through. You have heard that it was said. This is what they say about these texts. But I say to you. And he doesn't even say, thus says the Lord. He doesn't quote another rabbi to affirm his position. Now all of a sudden, here's a man in the seat in the synagogue... And he speaks as if he himself were God, as if he himself were king, as if he himself had some authority over the book. And Mark says, just look at him. You see him doing that? Ordinary people don't do that kind of thing. And what I want to argue, what I think Mark is doing here, he's simply saying that here is a rabbi who carries himself as if he were something. As if he were the king. Why does he do that? Because he is the king. He is the authoritative Messiah. And when he teaches, it just comes out of him. He is what he is teaching. The word authority literally is the word used of a king's power or dominion. And here is a man who teaches as if he has a unique, special endowment, special authority. And, And I say... And I think you agree that the people were right to marvel at such a man. All right, these, these people heard something they had never heard before. Right? And just think about how these four disciples felt. Here they are. They just sold everything. Right, we, just, we just left everything. We left our fishing business. Everybody thinks we're a little crazy. Uh, what are you doing Andrew, why, why, are you, don't, why are you doing this? Let me try to explain it to you. Uh, here's what we you knew. We were disciples of John the Baptist. He told us that this was the Messiah. We spent time with him. We, we think he really is the Messiah, and we were convinced that he is. And he just showed up to us. Uh, we were working. He showed up, and you, were, you witnessed it. And he called us, and, and we were compelled to follow him. You're throwing your life away. Why are, you, why are you following such a low man like Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean? You have to think. Here they are in the synagogue. And all of their decisions to follow the king are vindicated. <laughs> Here he is. Here he is. Uh, Deuteronomy 18. Here he is, the greater Moses. Right? The prophet greater than Moses sitting in Moses' seat, teaching. But he teaches as one who has an absolute, utter authority. And friends, 
once you see this is the king, you will follow him wherever he leads. Because it only makes sense to do that, right? If he is who he says he is, he's worthy of everything, right? What treasure is so valuable here that you would cling to it and not leave it off to follow the Messiah? What treasure could match endless, eternal bliss, perfect forgiveness of your, full forgiveness of your sins, perfect satisfaction in God and in the world that he's made? What treasure could match the fruit of following the king? Nothing. And these disciples are completely vindicated at this point, at least in their mind. Now, they're going to struggle throughout the gospel. We'll see that. Um, but isn't that the way it is with all of us? You know, we're just gradually, it's like we make an advance, and then we feel like we step back four steps, and then we make a little advance, and then we feel like we step back. This is the way of discipleship. Remember, Jesus knows how to handle people like us. All right? So this is the king teaching. So we see first, Jesus' messianic authority is on display through his distinct teaching. And second, we see his authority displayed through his holy presence. Look at verse 23. Here is Jesus teaching in the synagogue. The people are rightly astonished. And all of a sudden, verse 23, there is a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Unclean spirit. Unclean meaning ritually or ceremonially unclean. Right? There are only two types of spirits out there. There are clean spirits, which are right to be before the divine, ritually clean. Those are angelic beings, good, elect angels. And then there are unclean spirits. Unclean meaning that which is not fit to be brought before a holy God. Right? Those are demons. Right? Scripture gives us that very clearly. So here an unclean spirit is simply a demon. And Mark uses that language interchangeably throughout the gospel. And so, so these terms are synonyms. Unclean spirit is a demon. Now here is a man who sits in the synagogue acting like a normal person. Uh, participating in the worship service. You know, there's no indicator that he was strange like the Gadarene, right? There, there are demoniacs. There were, there, there were demons that were destroying men in different ways, throwing them into fires, doing all this harm. But here's a man who's possessed by a demonic power, sitting perfectly still, participating in the religious uh, tradition. And he fits right into the service. There's no indicator that he's, he stands out. Now, it's important that we, that we understand this. That Satan often, according to 2 Corinthians 11, he disguises himself as an angel of light. And that part of the demonic agenda is to perpetuate hypocrisy and error and deceit in religion. And they spin deceptive doctrines. This is demonic activity. The goal is to trip up the people of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
This, is, this goes on even today. Demon possession is a real thing, uh, just as real as it was here. Uh, it's, it's often happening. It has many forms. Uh, this is a reality of Scripture. Scripture teaches us a supernatural worldview. Right? We don't buy into the error that all that exists is what we can see. We don't buy that. Right? We understand that there is a world of evil out there, and there are demonic powers, and there is a devil, 1 Peter 5 eight, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And his chief delight would be to destroy God's people. That's what he does. He has come to kill, steal, destroy. Now, we also should know that the child of God is inhabited not by an unclean spirit, but by the Holy Spirit, right? And and the unclean spirit, a demon, a a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. I just want to put that out there. But here we are, a man in the crowd, fully conformed to the religious liturgy here, and possessed by a demon. And all of a sudden, what was once under the radar becomes prominent. It's interesting. Demon activity is happening all the time, but when Jesus appears, there's this influx of demonic activity. Why? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, The reason for that is because the presence of Christ pulled out, drew out the activity of demonic powers. They understand that when they're in the presence of the king, they can't remain hidden. Right? The world may not see it, but the king does. He knows what's going on. And his presence, as it were, just sort of drew out the demonic activity, the demons from their lairs. And it showed in this particular moment. Here's a man you would have never guessed inhabited by a demon. But in this moment, he encounters the living God. And he cannot hide. And so verse 23, verse 24, or verse 23, the end, he cries out. He cried out. He shouted. And he yelled at the top of his lungs. Here we are sitting, and there he is. I'm not going to point at any of you. I'm not saying any of you are demon possessed. Uh, You know, here he is, somewhere out here. Um, And he yells at the top of his lungs. And he says, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This would have been a terrifying moment. Here is Bob. (laughs) Bob has been a faithful participant of the synagogue for 20 years, and now Bob loses it. And we don't know what's happening. What has happened is this demon is using Bob's vocal cords, his, his, his equipment, as it were, to rebel, uh, to voice, rather, not really rebel, but to voice his fear and terror at the presence of the king. And he's thrown into a fit, a panic, a frenzy. He's afraid. And he says three things. What business do we have with each other? Literally, what to me and to you. Makes no sense in English. Makes all the sense in the world to a Hebrew. They understand this is an idiom. Another, another way of saying this is, why are you bothering us? Why, why are you here? Uh, we were perfectly fine. And now you show up. And your presence is doing something to us. And we don't want you here 
And by the way, we know who you are. There's some hostility here. And the people see it. And they were already awestruck. And they're struck even further in amazement. This lunatic before them, this man is acting wild. And they have no idea what's going on. And then he says, have you come to destroy us? Notice the plural. To destroy us. Probably he's speaking on behalf of the whole demonic uh, host. Have you come to destroy us? He knows he's in the presence of one who could judge him in a moment and wipe him out. He knows that. Have you come to destroy us? He knows that this is a man who has authority. He knows that the kingdom of God itself is being proclaimed by this man who is the Messiah, who is the one who will nullify Satan's efforts in the world, who will destroy all the demonic hosts, and he will bring them to nothing. He knows that. He knows that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth to destroy the demonic hosts in a moment. It's amazing. The demons, their ambition, right, is to destroy, to destroy, destroy, destroy. They strike terror in people. And it would have been a terrifying thing. And all of a sudden, the tables are turned. The one who was terrifying is now utterly terrified in the presence of the king. And look, he also knows exactly, exactly who Jesus is. Verse, the end of verse 24, I know who you are, the Holy One. His language clearly echoes the Old Testament names of God. Job, Psalms, Isaiah. God is simply called the Holy One. 32 other places, God is called the Holy One of Israel. The demon knows that he is in the presence of the Holy One of God. He knows it. And he can't help but to cry out. Jesus' mere presence elicits it. It draws it out. It's like you're so scared and you scream, right? You walk around the corner and your kid jumps out at you. Does that happen to you guys? Um, and you scream and you yell and you're, you're scared. This is what's happening. He's, he's shocked. He's terrified. He's in a frenzy because he's in the presence of the Holy One of God. The mere presence of Christ demonstrates his messianic authority. You can know that now, or you can know it later. And friends, God would have you to know now. To, like Isaiah, see the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne, and fall before him in repentance, confessing your own sin, turning from that to follow the Lord. One day, we will all see the king in his glory. And what's amazing about this is really Jesus' glory is veiled. Right? It's unveiled in a couple of moments. Uh, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration, you see this unveiling of who Jesus really is. This is, this is sort of the mere presence of a veiled divinity, of, of God, of Christ in the flesh. God in the flesh, veiled with humanity. And here he is, but the demon knows and he trembles, 
and fear. He knows that he's face to face with the Holy One of God who is the promised Messiah who will bring an everlasting peace. And the demons know that they are the ones who will be thrown in a bottomless pit for eternity. And they shriek and fear at the presence of Christ. So we've seen that the the messianic authority of Jesus is displayed through his distinct teaching, displayed through his holy presence, and last, it's displayed through his powerful command. Look at verses 25 to 27. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. There is none outside the realm of his messianic authority. Even the most terrifying spirits bow to him. They obey his command. In a word, Jesus says, be quiet and come out. And in a moment, it happens. Two quick, simple commands. Be quiet, come out of him. Be quiet, because although the demon was right about the identity of the Lord, Jesus was, didn't need the publicity help of the demonic powers. Right? He was going to reveal his identity at the right time. So over and over through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will say, don't say a word. Be quiet. Don't say that I'm the Messiah at this point. It's not there yet. We're not there yet. Right? He doesn't need demonic witnesses at this point affirming him. And then he says, come out of him. The result of that command was an immediate departure. But it was dramatic, right? Um, the demon, it says, uh, verse 26, the demon threw him into convulsions. It shook him violently, is the idea. And he cried out with a loud voice. Literally, he shouted with a great shout. This is what he did. And then he came out of him. This was not, in one sense, it wasn't uncommon for exorcisms to happen, but what was uncommon in this moment was for this guy to be so normal and then to be exorcised, and for this man in Moses' seat to draw him out or to command the demon to come out with no special incantations, no magic, no uh, recitations of, of, of the old ways, nothing like that. He, he doesn't use rituals, magic, spells, nothing He simply speaks, and the power of his command compels the demon to come out. Just like the power of his come follow me compelled these men who were fishermen to follow, the power of his come out compelled the demons to do exactly what he says. And look at verse 27. Here's the result. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? What in the world is happening? What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They were astonished. Astonished. 
Verse 22 says they were amazed. ESV says astonished. And, and it's interesting. Verse 22 says astonished. Verse 27, they are amazed. And so the whole story is bookended with amazement and marvel and astonishment. The word literally here, it, it, it means to be bewildered. It's this fear. It's this I'm so amazed at what's in front of me, I'm speechless. Something truly awesome had happened. And now, they are appropriately awestruck by it. But notice, I want you to notice very quickly, and and this will be the last thing to see. Notice what their takeaway is. Of all the things you could say at a moment like that, what, what is it that comes up? What is it that is the takeaway? What's the, what's the point that we walk away discussing? Is it the way demons possess people? Is it the way the scribes are terrible teachers, but we like Jesus more, we'll be on his team? What do, what do you do? But notice, they say, what is this? And their answer, a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Authority and obedience. That's the shock. How is it that a man from Nazareth can come into our synagogue, speak with absolute authority, say, I tell you this, not quoting rabbis, and all of a sudden the weirdest thing happens that we've never seen before, that was the most terrifying thing I've witnessed. He tells the man, essentially to shut up and sit down and leave and the the demon says okay i'm out what in the world is happening here we've never witnessed someone with this kind of authority never have we seen it and this is mark's entire point he wants us to read this text and come away knowing that jesus of nazareth was a man endowed with messianic authority and it is on full display here and we don't want to just marvel we don't want to just be in awe and in shock at what jesus does we want to bring ourselves like those four disciples underneath him and say you you are the king you are him not me Where you lead is where this poor peasant who is weak, frail, run-of-the-mill will follow. If you go here, I'm going with you. I will go wherever you go. If that ends up at the cross, I will take it up with you. This is the whole point. Jesus executes his authority over you and I now. Through his written word. This. And my question is, have you submitted to such a king? Now, I I believe if you're here, you're going to say, why, yes, I have. Well, do you know what the proof of that statement is? The proof of your answer is not the loudness of your uh, affirmation. Right? It's not the orthodoxy even of your affirmation of Christ's messianic authority. The proof that you have brought yourself 
underneath the king is a continually transformed life. Is your life more and more being conformed into the image of Jesus of Nazareth? Friends, he is Messiah. He is king. And you can bow to him now or bow to him later. And I would say, and the Lord would say, bow now. And you will find that his burden, the cross he asks you to bear, is light. It's hard, but the reward is immense. And there is no disciple, no one who takes up their cross and lives a life following the king, who in the end looks back and say, oh, I think I gave Jesus too much. No, no. At the end of all of our lives, there's probably one thing that we will wish And it is that we would have lived more underneath the king's authority. We would have enjoyed him more than we have now. My prayer for you and I is that that will even start today. Let's pray. Father, there is no God like you. You sit above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants of it, you say, are like grasshoppers before you. Yet, Lord, we rejoice that you love us, weak though we be. You have ordained, you have decreed that your gospel will be advanced through the hands of weak, insignificant, powerless, unprestigious people, and we delight to be numbered among that lot. But our prayer today, Lord, is that you would help us uh, to come away from having seen Jesus and his majesty and to, like the disciples before us, to joyfully submit to his authority in every area of our lives. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.